0: Radio MD. RadioMD.com Hear it from the doctor with expert guests from the American Academy of Pediatrics. It's Healthy Children. Now,
1: our favorite mom, Melanie Cole, MS. Welcome to Healthy Children. I'm Melanie Cole, and today we're discussing the latest CDC report on autism. And joining me is Dr. Kristen Soule. She's the chair of the AAP Subcommittee on Autism as part of the Council on Children with Disabilities. She's also a pediatrician and spokesperson for the American Academy of Pediatrics. Dr. Soul, thank you so much for joining us today. Before we get into the CDC report, can you tell the listeners what are the autism spectrum disorders? And how common are they? Because I think one of the misconception is what we call the spectrum. And people don't really understand what that means.
0: Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for having me. So this is definitely an important topic. Autism spectrum disorder is a single disorder that really encompasses a lot of different um, different people. And so when we think about autism spectrum disorder, it's all about um, challenges or deficits in social communication, which I'll come back to in a second, and then the presence of repetitive and restricted behaviors. And so when we think about social communication, What does that mean? That means how we interact with other people, um, with our eye contact, with our gestures, our body language, and how then we also um, receive or perceive how another person is trying to interact with us. So that social communication factor is really the hallmark of autism spectrum disorders um, or disorder. And one of the things that we think about um, with that is trying to help little, help recognize symptoms of autism in little children, and then also how that can look across the
1: So how common is this? I I see that it's more common than it used to be, but there have been theories about whether that's because we have better diagnostic and screening tools or for whatever reason. Can you explain that a little bit? Yeah, I'd be happy to. So when we think about the most recent Center for Disease Control numbers, um, it
0: shows that uh, in the United States, one out of every 44 children is now diagnosed with autism spectrum disorder. And that is an increase since the last numbers were reported in 2020. And when we think about this, it tells us that many more children are being recognized as having autism. And it's true. We are much better at screening and identifying people with autism than we were, let's say 20, 25 years ago. Um, it does not seem to reflect a true increase in the the, the prevalence of autism as far as, you know, more people, um, for example, um, having the disorder. I mean, we do know that more people have the disorder, but we think most of that is from what we call diagnostic shift which is where the clinicians who diagnose autism are getting better and better about understanding the differences between autism spectrum disorder and, let's say, intellectual disability or other things that may look like um, significant language and social communication delay in kids. And so that's what we think. But we will uh, readily admit that we don't know everything about this topic. And so researchers are actively trying to better understand why autism happens and what are the causes. And those are some things that we just still don't know a lot about.
1: So are there still racial and ethnic disparities that still persist? Can you tell us some of the community differences in autism spectrum disorders and the identification that exists?
0: Yeah, absolutely. So what we know is that, um, you know, developmental disabilities are seen sometimes As a problem. And when we think about what that means to some parents, and particularly in different cultures and different ethnicities, sometimes parents are very, you know, on top of anything that might be going differently than expected. And so they're in the pediatrician's office and they're talking about the things that they're seeing and they're getting those screenings. Other types of uh, other cultures and other ethnicities may have a different approach, more of a, you know, no, I'm not going to think about that right now. Um, I'm sure it'll be fine. It'll, It'll go away. Some cultures also have what we think of as stigma associated with developmental disabilities or concerns. And so what does that mean? So that means that they may be really reluctant or very much, you know, um, in denial about differences that are being seen. So we definitely see these differences across uh, races and ethnicities um, based on cultural kind of acceptance of differences in the way that someone's developing. This also though plays out in the healthcare space. So sometimes if you're in a lower resourced area, like a rural community or an urban community, you may not have access to a primary care pediatrician. You might not have access to somebody who is following the best practice standards for developmental and autism screening. And that certainly can affect your ability to be diagnosed um, at an early age, like is recommended by the American Academy of Pediatrics.
1: Well, then let's talk about progress in the early identification of children with autism spectrum disorders and when is a child when should they typically be screened what's involved in that
0: absolutely so we are making lots of progress it's a huge area of focus both in research but then also clinically and so what we know is that it's pretty easy to Follow uh, the American Academy of Pediatrics screening guidelines, um, and you do that at a routine well-child visits or, or preventative visits at the 18-month and the 24-month uh, well-child checks. So this is, there are standardized screeners that can be used and billed out by the parent, often while they're waiting to see the doctor at those visits. And they're pretty straightforward, and they're great at screening for the most common symptoms of autism and then allowing that doctor to have a conversation with a parent about what next steps make sense for that child. Sometimes it's going to a specialist to be evaluated and diagnosed. Sometimes it's actually being evaluated right there in the primary care office at a different visit where they can dig deeper into the symptoms that may have been picked up on the screening. What we know is that it's important for us to start recognizing symptoms early. Um, Autism can be reliably diagnosed by the age of 24 months. And even though that has been the case for quite a number of years, we still have an average age of diagnosis in this country at a little over age four. So that's two whole years later than when we can reliably diagnose it. And that's two years when kids can be and really should be in early intervention if they have autism.
1: Well, I would love it, Dr. Soule, as long as you're talking about recognizing symptoms. Please discuss some of those red flags that a parent or a caregiver would notice. Absolutely. So autism
0: really is um, can be t- challenging to pick up in, unless you have a lot of experience, clinical experience, and seeing some of those red flags. But there are very obvious red flags that we can all recognize and better understand. So things like differences in eye contact, maybe not referencing um, your parents when, when you want something, maybe instead being very object-focused, looking at the object and kind of hoping someone figures it out. That is something that uh, most toddlers and even infants are able to do with their eyes and with pointing as they get into the first year of life. So when we think about pointing, that's directing somebody's attention to an item that you want or something you want someone else to look at. That is socially communicating. You're engaging with another person socially to communicate an interest or draw their attention to something. In autism, that is a red flag. So a child who's not pointing, is not responding to their name, um, is not making eye contact on a regular or consistent basis, those are all red flags. Other red flags are in the category of repetitive and restricted behaviors. And what do I mean by that mouthful is that the child may have a real interest in a particular object. Maybe they only want to play with a part of a toy. Maybe you just got them a bunch of toys for Christmas and they only want to push one button on one toy over and over and over again. That's a red flag that says, huh, this child's more interested in this particular button than in playing with the whole toy or engaging with me as the mom or with other people um, in playing with that toy. Those are red flags. Other red flags in the repetitive category can include unusual body movements. So things like body rocking or pacing or spinning in circles. Um, These are things that happen a lot. Um, Every child might like to spin in circles and that's not a red flag. But if that's the only thing, or if that becomes a dominant thing that they do, then that is a red flag. These are all things that you, if you're seeing any of these red flags, you should be talking with your pediatrician and helping them to better understand what's going on in your child's development.
1: That was an excellent list, Dr. Sol. Now, you know, we would be remiss in this podcast if we didn't mention the elephant in the room. And right now with COVID and more, you know, all this talk about the vaccines, I need you to clear it up for us. Please clear this up about vaccinations and autism and that there is no link, and the AAP has been saying this for years, as have I on this podcast, but I'd love for you to say it again.
0: Absolutely, so there is no link between vaccinations and autism. I will say that for parents who are scared or worried about getting their child vaccinated because of this risk that has been, you know, debunked um, many years ago, I want you to know that your child's risk for getting sick from other diseases and other things, if you're not vaccinated, is much higher. Um, and so that's the part, as a parent, it's hard to make decisions sometimes. It's hard to make a decision and to know that it's the right one. And But I can tell you that Decades of science and numerous studies have attempted both to prove that there's a link between autism and vaccines or disprove that there's a link between autism and vaccines, and none of them um, are able to show any linkage whatsoever between a vaccine and autism spectrum disorder. The things that we do know that can contribute to autism are things like having another family member with an autism diagnosis. We also know that sometimes there's a the link between very young moms uh, and having an increased risk of autism or or much older fathers um, having a link with an increased risk for autism. These are things that are are very subtle and nuanced and require talking to your doctor about. But what we definitely know is that there is no link between autism and vaccinations.
1: Yeah, I'm just going to leave that right there, because it was debunked, and you said it beautifully, and thank you for that. Now, we know that every situation is different, but how can a child on the spectrum be helped by this combined effort of parents, the healthcare community, the school district, even the state? And when we speak about the medical home and the family's pediatrician, how everybody works together to help the family navigate the support and the help and the options for therapy that are out there? Yeah.
0: So having autism um, both has its positives and its challenges, right? So I, as a physician who almost exclusively sees kiddos with an autism diagnosis, they are uh, some of the most incredible kids on the planet. They have so many great things that they can do. And yet life can be complicated. There are challenging behaviors that may be going on. There may be additional medical concerns or psychiatric issues. There may be resources to navigate. And so the thing that is really important about um, supporting someone with autism, if you're a parent or a clinician's listening, it's really important to make sure that that medical home is actively involved and is actively helping to coordinate the efforts that are going on for this child with additional special needs. And so what does that mean? That means trying to keep people on the same page as much as you can. So helping the school talk to the doctor and the doctor talk to the school, or at least having the paperwork, the IEPs, for example, or other types of documents shared across those settings. What we know is that sharing care or sharing across settings, school, home, healthcare, um, therapy, that's vital to really making sure this child has every chance at living their best life. Kiddos with autism do great in intervention, and frankly, they are great just by themselves. But one of the things that can be very stressful for families is trying to coordinate all of those things and keep track of all the different elements of what might be going on. And so the more that can be done through a team, the better that approach can really be. And this doesn't stop in those early years. So you know, when you first get that diagnosis, a lot of attention is given to that, but it also continues throughout the life course. So as that child gets older and maybe enters middle school or high school or graduates from high school, having that primary care medical home and that pediatrician to walk alongside that family is essential. And so pediatricians are working really hard to better understand their role. And frankly, the the complex system around autism and the interventions and services um, that are available to kids, and so certainly this takes a team—specialists, generalists, schools, state uh, resources—all of us together, really trying to aim high for this kiddo.
1: Well, it's certainly true. I'm an exercise physiologist, and I know that this multidisciplinary approach is so important with occupational therapists and physical therapists and speech therapists and the teachers and everything that you've mentioned there. As we get ready to wrap up, overall. What do these findings on the latest CDC report on autism underscore, and give some tips for parents listening on working with that team, gathering that team around, and really, you know, utilizing the resources that are available, including the American Academy of Pediatrics. Absolutely.
0: So, you know, the take-home message from this report is that autism's prevalence continues to go up. Part of that is good news in that we are identifying more children and more children are having the opportunity to engage in intervention um, and to help them really do great um, and continue to encourage their positive um, skill growth. And you know, it also though highlights that we have much more work to do. We need more people who are able to understand autism, to understand the resources that are available and support families. So if you're a parent that's listening, I think number one, first and foremost, is love your baby. Love your child. Engage with them as often as you can in social interactions. If you're concerned that your child may have autism, please talk to your pediatrician. That's what they're there for. And if they don't know, then they have tons of resources within the American Academy of Pediatrics that they can go to um, and learn more about autism if they're uncomfortable. One of the things that I also know is that when we're thinking about how do we support children and families, it is really trying to create a team. And so if you are concerned, or maybe your child has just been recently diagnosed with autism, helping to remind each of your team members that it's important for them to talk to each other. That might be as simple as sharing their notes, but it also may be that they actually need to pick up the phone and have a conversation. You know, these are things that are important, and we know that the coordination of care takes time um, and certainly is not always easy or sometimes not even always possible, Um, but certainly the more that each of us are on the same page for a child and their family, the more um, the stress can be reduced and the quality of life improved. So certainly just doing your part as a parent to love and engage and interact with your baby, um, super important, or maybe your child is older and you don't call them a baby anymore. Um, That's okay too, but just continuing to love and embrace the abilities that they have is essential for any of us, right? And so certainly, Seeing the positive, seeing the, the the abilities that they have uh, super important and building up their confidence as a child. But then also you as a parent can do a lot too and just reminding, gently reminding your care team to talk with each other and to really keep your child's progress at, at the forefront of what's going on.
1: What an informative episode this was. Thank you so much, Dr. Sol, for joining us today. And I hope you'll join us again. You're an excellent educator and a great guest. Thank you so much. You're listening to Healthy Children. All of our expert guests are provided by the American Academy of Pediatrics in conjunction with their consumer website, healthychildren.org. Remember to share this show on your social channels with your friends and your family because we're learning from the experts at AAP together. And I can tell you as a mom of two, they are the gold standard. We love our pediatricians. They're helping us to raise our children and to raise them happy and safe. That's really all it's about. So for the American Academy of Pediatrics, Healthy Children, Radio MD, I'm Melanie Cole. Stay well and thank you so much for joining us.